G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We are turning our attention to the creation-evolution debate and the evidence for creation that we can see around us and what you can find on a field trip if you know what you're looking for. Well, our special guest today has debated leading evolutionists and academics from the most prestigious institutions like Oxford and Cambridge, as well as Australian, Canadian and USA institutions. Uh, You can hear podcasts of his debates with the likes of Richard Dawkins and John Polkinghorne. And John Mackay, the author of 11 books for adults and children, bringing biblical and scientific insight to the biggest controversies of our generation. He's affectionately known as John Mackay, the creation guy. He's the founder of Creation Research and the Aussie Creation Museum, Jurassic Ark. And when he's not leading fossil field trips and dinosaur digs around the planet, we take the opportunity to talk to him here on 2020. John, a special welcome back to 2020. And it's nice to be back, and it's nice to be back in Queensland after several weeks down south for the first time in ages. Praise God for some of these open borders. (laughs) Yes, uh, open borders have uh, returned a little bit Mm -hmm. of normality to you, and you've been down in Victoria Mm -hmm. Uh, For uh, the last uh, two or three weeks, uh, you've been leading some field trips, Mm -hmm. speaking to a Mm -hmm. conference. Uh, Give us some insights. By the way, I got a new name. We had one little boy on a field trip. And he came up to me with the rock and he said, Fossil John, what's this? <laughs> I'm not sure I want it to catch on. but yeah. <laughs> It might be an insult. Yeah, You're getting a few, right. few years right. there that's and extra exactly few grey right. hairs. Yeah. Okay, I bought some things in this morning uh, because they are spectacular. Um, would you like to hold that, Neil? Okay, we can reach over each other. Okay, so this is a piece of uh, quartz. Quartz is correct. That's not bad, isn't it, pretty? And uh, yes, it's absolutely delightful. Okay, now, when I go down to Castlemaine, Ballarat, Bendigo area, that's the gold triangle, right? So I wasn't really looking for quartz, although it's everywhere. And that's clue number one, that there's probably gold there. Now, you do know that the first metal mentioned in the Bible is gold. And, of course, we lust after gold. After Genesis 3, we just don't want it. We lust after it, right, because it's so valuable to us. It's also the last metal mentioned in the Bible where it's used as street paving. So that puts it in our perspective that we need to keep it in. But do you notice something about the shape of the crystals? Uh, Well, I think that some listeners who are imagining what I'm holding in my Mm -hmm. hand right now might be thinking, wow, if only they were diamonds. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, they're, they're, they're beautiful formations. They are. And I also bought these two things out of my kids' toy games. You know, uh, my kids are all married and they've got their own children, etc. But the, I've still got board games left. And so I bought a couple of dice, right? So if we take one die each, right, yep. and throw it, of course, the ideal aim is to get six. Now, if you hand me back that lovely bit of quartz, uh, isn't it good we don't have to spray it or anything anymore? That's, right. That's really great. <laughs> uh, each of them has got six sides. Hmm. Now, what's interesting, of course, is... I've been all over the planet. I've been to Ballarat. I've been to Bendigo, big places like that, right? Even Castlemaine now, the recent Easter camp. And I was looking for crystals as a clue as to where gold was. For those of you, by the way, who want to know a few more little hints, 
if you look for carbon as well, gold, carbon, quartz, they all go together. Nobody's quite sure why, but there's, there's a good hint if you're down that area. But what's interesting about these is they've all got flat sides, correct, Neil? They do. Yep. And they terminate in a point. Yep. And if you're a good at counter, you actually run out one finger short if you try and count the face. They've got six faces. Now, of course, my dice have got six faces. And the ideal thing is if you throw the dice, you're after sixes, right? Two sixes on a board game, and you are scoring big time. Two ones, you may be ne- nearly, nearly losing. Okay, now we use as rule of chance, say in a roulette game or in a, in a, in a casino, right? Uh, you wouldn't know about this, and I don't either, but I know uh, what people two, say. Two up from uh, <laughs> two up, two up, that's you right, know, that's a, a legitimate chance game. One day a year. Yep. Um, okay, so if I was to throw six sixes, people would get a little suspicious. They would. If I was to throw a thousand sixes, they'd know the game was rigged. Now, what do we mean by rigged? Somebody you cannot see, somebody you don't know, somebody who's smarter than you are is actually ruling the game. Now, when you look at quartz, every quartz crystal I've ever dug up, ever found, you can look on the internet if you like, go to Google, every quartz crystal has six sides, millions of sixes all in a row. And the world thinks we got here by chance? No, the six sides on quartz are a marvellous evidence there's somebody you can't see, somebody you may not know, and somebody who's smarter than you and I are who actually is behind all of these numbers. Brilliant. Six sixes on quartz every time, and it's a good evidence of God's handiwork and creation. Like you said in Romans chapter 1, you can see it, you can hear it, and even you understood it. I understood it. Neil understood it, right? So we've got no excuse. Uh, Some listeners will be saying, John, did you find any gold? Um, not this trip, <laughs> except at the Easter convention that I ran down. I mean, I primarily went down to do the Easter convention, visit kids I haven't seen for a couple of years, and go on a few field trips, but we were looking for fossils and things like that. So I know where the gold is because I've been there before, but the quartz crystals on the old pile heaps are really worth collecting as well. You know, I can remember over the years having conversations with you about the sorts of things you might see even in your own backyard mm-hmm. or on nearby visits to various formations that you might be living near. If you've got your eyes open, uh, is it possible that you can go into your own community, wherever you might be listening today, and you can find some things that will give you insight into uh, creation oh, ideas? certainly will. So certainly this is will. the sort of thing, when, when someone goes on a field trip with you, they've got the John Mackay wisdom <laughs> to go along with it. Give us some insights into well, the sorts of things that you discovered on your field trips. Not far away from even our studio, here is the first coal mine ever dug in, in, in Queensland, right? over near Griffith University, just down by the creek there. But when you look at coal, full of carbon, full of plants, uh, plants that have been squashed and cooked, etc. So it's, it's actually still there if you know where to go. But I remember being over there in one of the old quarries, which are still there behind the old industrial buildings now, and one of the university students said, how come you're always finding fossils? And I said, well, there's a little bit of experience. No, but you find so many fossils, I can't see a thing. I said, well, I'll give you my my success uh, formula. I said, before I go on a field trip, I say, Lord Jesus, you know where all these rocks are. You know what's in the fossil. Open my eyes so I can see too. And I don't ever back away from that. That's what I tell the professors. That's why I find such good fossils and you want to give God the glory. So point number one, if you're a Christian and you want to see what's in your area, then that old prayer, open my eyes, Lord that I may see, applies to fossils, to people, to those who need help. It applies to everything, and he will answer that prayer. Uh, So around here, um, you've got uh, fossil plants. 
I passed an excavation at the top of the entry to the freeway and there's all the Triassic coal seams and, and sediments and they're full of plants. How do I know? I used to lead field trips to that area before it got all commercialised, right? And now, of course, you can't get permission without a ton of lawyers <laughs> uh, sitting over there. But it's full of plants and the plants tell you one thing. They've got no roots. They've got no branches. They didn't grow there. They were washed in. They grew somewhere else. And that Triassic bed is an enormous here in Australia, just enormous. Gazillions of plants uh, are world destroyed. That's what you're looking at. What about ordinary Aussie Christians? Is there a fear of fossils? Now, I don't know what sort of phobia you'd call that, but the thought that uh, fossils, oh, that might mean that there's an evolutionary alignment if you've found fossils. Mm. Uh, Is there a Christian fear of fossils? Because, I mean, I know, talking to you, we're excited about the fossils, but for some, it's like, oh, doesn't that actually affirm evolution? Well, basically, when I first started university, and I keep telling people this that so they can understand what the agenda is. Even at Queensland University, which on the science laboratory had a verse over there, um, you know, the, 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 he is the light of the world and these open my eyes that I may see, these sort of verses that you can actually see. Paleontology or fossilology, if you want to call it that, started with a Christian worldview and they saw that the ancient Greeks were wrong. The fossils were not tricks played by the gods. They were not even the real god playing jokes on us or anything like that. If it looked like a shark's tooth, it was a shark's tooth. You could trust God. And as Martin Luther said, God has stamped his nature on creation. You can trust the creation. That's where it started, right? Before that, there was no such science. And then evolutionists took it over. So my first week, Queensland University, we are not here to talk about such rubbish as catastrophic geology or flood, uh, Noah's flood, etc. Now, at that point, I didn't know anything about the creation or whatever, but all of a sudden, oh, my professor doesn't like it, avoid it like crazy, and this flows down all through the schools, that we are brainwashed from kindergarten onwards to not even ask questions about it, hope it goes away, hope we don't ever have to deal with it. In fact, when I finished university and I was applying for a job, I asked, Lord, whatever you do, don't put me in a position where I have to say something about fossils because you know I don't know what to say. And uh, the Lord sort of made a few suggestions. Well, it's about time you found out what to say. And since then, the Lord has really helped me to see that they really are what Martin Luther saw them as, what Steno saw them as, the handiwork of God in creation, albeit a judged creation in Noah's flood. Because sometimes if we are holding a fossil in our hand, we're thinking millions of years uh, to think of a younger earth, a biblical Genesis historic record type of creation account, uh, then you're obviously looking at things a whole lot younger. So, But people have in their mind, don't they? When they hear fossil, they think millions, they really, uh, where really in actual do. fact, and uh, you know, you've got your uh, your quartz crystal there mm-hmm. uh, crystals are growing and, mm-hmm. uh, and I wonder if you've got any insights here into the way that we might look at even the formation of crystals uh, that actually could d- demonstrate creation okay two sides of that with the fossils if you're a gardener then hint hint wink wink nudge nudge when you trim your plants and you throw the cuttings aside they are disintegrated within a couple of months at the very most even if they get buried in water they will rot and be eaten, right? So when you are looking at preserved plants, you had to bury them faster than they rotted. You had to remove them from air or they will still rot even buried. You 
you had to get rid of the bugs and the eaters because you can always tell if a plant's been eaten before it died. It's got holes in the leaves, right? And the fossil is ruined. But if you, like when I was saying, I was coming over here and passing that new cutting by the freeway there, um, I've dug up fossils there. They are magnificent. They look like artist's work, right? They were buried before they had a chance to go rotten. There's no, no bug marks on the edge. There's no worm marks through them. They were buried quickly. And quickly is the concept that's driven out of our heads right from kindergarten onwards. It takes a long time. Now, if you take a long time to try and make a fossil, you won't ever get a fossil. Point number one. Point number two, uh, are you old enough to remember crystal radios, Neil? Uh, well, uh, maybe not. Not, not, not quite. Uh, <laughs> not I'm, quite. I'm familiar with them, but uh, uh, yeah. right. no, give us well, your insight. When I here. grew up, being Fossil John now, of course, that's, that's my <laughs> new name apparently, yeah. being Fossil John, we used to play with crystal radios and, of course, quartz crystals and that sort of stuff were the powerhouse of that because quartz has got a property. If you compress it and let it go, it generates an electrical charge, right? Fascinating property. And so we would use quartz crystal for tuning the radios and things like that. And we used to think in terms of vast ages. But now we have computers and that, all of which use crystals of certain sorts, and we've learned to grow them. We can grow huge crystals in just a couple of weeks. Otherwise, we could never afford to do it. So it's not time, it's process. So when you look at crystals, don't think of millions of years. Think of a process. And if you got the process right, you don't take time at all. And God had the really good process. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. You might have a question about creation and evolution. And our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is John Mackay, the creation guy. He's the founder of Creation Research and the Aussie Creation Museum, Jurassic Ark. And we'll talk about Jurassic Ark in just a few moments too because things are back and uh, fully functional after you might call it a post-COVID time. Uh, John, you've been down in Victoria and you've had a fabulous time at the Easter Convention there mm-hmm. and, and that's been expanding now. Uh, just well, it certainly has. It started out as just a campsite West, I mean, the big conventions are down uh, on the eastern side of Melbourne, Belgrave and that, and, and I've been to them, and great stuff, big campsite, etc. But a Christian family bought a property years ago, and they decided they wanted to turn it into a Christian campsite, right, even though it's a commercial property as well. And it was funny, the warning we got as we went, now don't go into that paddock, there's a, a, a young steer who thinks he's a growing bull, right? Stay away, <laughs> stay away from him. Not the normal sort of health warning you get at, at an Easter camp. But uh, they bought a property and named it Mount Hope. Now, to tell you how much uh, uh, desire they had to turn it into, the mountain's about two and a half feet a metre tall. So it was the biggest hill in the the district. But uh, they actually ran it as a camp-out camp, you know, bring your own tents, bring your own caravan, bring your own everything. And it worked really, really well. And thanks to Vision for you guys promoting because there were people there who'd heard it on Vision Radio. So that was really great. You've got quite a few supporters down in Bendigo and Surround. So that's really, really great. So keep up the good work, guys. Uh, Yep, wonderful to have uh, those listeners uh, who obviously heard about the... 
convention and uh, decided to go along and support that. Hey, when you run a field trip, when mm-hmm. you're at a convention like that, and you mentioned this one is more like a camp out exercise, mm-hmm. uh, do you take people on a, in a convoy or on a bus or how does that all work? And do you go to a particular place or do you just say, hey, there's a hill over there, let's go and look? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're sort of assuming that, uh, you know, when John Mackay goes looking for fossils, uh, they're just everywhere. But w- w- where do you take people on a field trip? All the above, but you've been to Victoria lately, perhaps not lately, but Victoria is known for weather that's absolutely unpredictable. So it started to rain on the Sunday. It was obviously going to rain all day Monday. So we had an inside field trip. I visited a friend of mine, grabbed a hold of all of his rocks and fossils and bought mine too. And we had an in-house field trip. So so that was great. One of the best finds that was given to us for that uh, display was actually an old Chinese tombstone that had obviously been broken before it was used, which would be bad luck to a Chinaman. You're, you're dead. That's bad enough but to be buried with a broken tombstone. So it was collected 60 years ago, not even cleaned up, and uh, it, it, it was a marvellous indicator that on Easter Sunday we had someone here who died and been buried and was still in the grave, and here we have Jesus, no tombstone, no, no epitaph, and he rose from the dead. So it was a marvellous in-house field trip, not what I usually do, but nevertheless it went for a few hours on the Sunday afternoon because it was so wet. And it was Easter time, you were there for the mm-hmm. Easter convention, and uh, all sorts of things come up for conversation around that time of year. Uh, you were talking a little bit of astrophysics here too, the alignment of planets and all sorts of things around Easter. We, we uh, so, sure were. We, we tackled a new topic. I must admit I was a little um, uh, cautious about doing it. There's a couple of verses in the New Testament that says Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, we have enough trouble with the six days, let alone before the first day of creation, right? Because that means there's no time in our category. There's no moon, stars. There's not even a space. God made the whole universe. There was not even nothing there. And as I love to tell people, don't think too hard about that. You'll leak out the years. But before the foundation of the world, God was, and he already planned the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we, we launched from that and said, okay, now if you think that through to the whole end of it, okay, we have Easter Sunday. But Easter Sunday is determined by Passover. And Passover is determined by the moon or month, right, or month, as we say. So what you've got is the month which God set up back in the beginning because you find that God made the sun, moon, and the stars for signs and for times and for seasons. You have a star at the birth of the Messiah. You have the month month at his sacrifice. And you see, hey, this has all been set up with the sun and moon and stars going at fixed speeds, at fixed orbits, so they would end up in exactly the right place. So the three wise men can say, there it is, guys, let's go. Or on Passover, the Jews would say, it's time to remember we were redeemed from Egypt and Jesus came to redeem us from sin and death and hell. So when you set up the plan of salvation, you have to start it even before you set the moon and the sun and the stars. And that's how great our God is. So if you're in any trouble out there at the moment, remember that God has gone ahead of you at creation. He's gone ahead of you at salvation. And he's way ahead of you when it comes to you living and dying for him. So have confidence fully in him. When we look at the Bible narrative, and as you say, uh, Passover, and it's determined each year according to the cycles of the moon, how do we connect even the formation of uh, a time when you might say this is 
Passover or our Christian thoughts, this is Easter and how that actually fits in with a Genesis account because because this is very, very uh, powerful if you're talking about, you know, astrologers as the wise men from the yeah. East were because they were looking at the stars and trying to work out things that were going on. Is this a connection to the Genesis account? Okay, beyond a shadow of a doubt, when God told Adam, the only man who could have been there to listen, that he made the sun and the moon and the stars for signs and for times and for seasons, you were looking way more than just, hey, guys, if you spot the Southern Cross, that's in Australia, right? You go south, right? If you spot the, the Sirius or whatever, then that tells you to go east, right? They, I use those when I'm out in the field at night. The sky is a brilliant compass, but even more than that, all the way through the Bible, you find God hinting through prophets and even through pagan prophets like Balaam said there will come a star and a scepter, a king in Israel, right? A star sign. And Moses was there to catch that as they passed through the desert. And, uh, well, Joshua could take it through. And then ultimately this is passed down to Daniel. And Daniel passes it on to the Magi because, remember, he spared their necks. They were going to be get the chop off. And he knew the meaning of the dream because God had told it to him. He didn't take any credit himself. And they became indebted to the information that the Jewish people had bought. And so they were ready and waiting 700 years later for the time when the star and the scepter sign were together. Now, you might know it, Neil, and I took a bit of research to find it out. But in ancient astrology, the house of Israel was designated by the fish. When you saw the star in the fish, go to Israel. They didn't know which town to go to. They went to the priest and asked him. And Herod said, these guys will tell you. And in the scripture, it says in Bethlehem. So that's where they went. So it's all tied in without the creation on the fourth day of the sun, moon and stars set in place, given the right time and the right space. There'd be no Calvary. There'd be no resurrection from the dead. There'd be no Passover. So God had it all planned from the foundation and the message is in the stars. I love to tell people one of the Aboriginal stories I came across years ago. I got this from an old man whose grandmother had uh, become a Christian many, many years earlier simply by saying, Biami, we know about you. We don't know who you are. Uh, please send someone to tell us. And he said the very next day, a missionary turned up. I mean, I still cry when I, when I hear that because this is how great God is. And so he and his family became Christians through the, the lady knowing from the handiwork of God there really was a God but not knowing anything about him. And likewise, when you go to the South Australia, you find a lovely story from the Aborigines where it says the moon dies once a month and on the third day it rises. Right. And you think, that's fabulous. Not far out from news, but is there a connection here between the sorts of narratives that tribal groups and other culture, even other religions have when they are including uh, issues around the sun and the stars, uh, even, I guess, even Aboriginal Dreamtime legends, uh, that that's, uh, this is something we would anticipate as Christian believers coming from the strength of the Bible's account of how you might look at the sun, the moon and the stars. It certainly is. I mean, we went around the world, as you probably remember, doing a video production, three of them, one called The Origin of the Races, one called Real Roots, right? And they actually interviewed the natives with their stories. So it wasn't just us repeating it. It wasn't just a university document. And their stories, basically, you can see them embedded in the Bible in root form. And, of course, then what happens is, like, my dad turned his back on the Bible, right? He still knew bits of it. 
and he could pass them on to you even though they got perverted in the telling. And that you find the same is true for any culture that turns its back on God. And they have the truth there, but it's all hidden up and they need you and I. Folks, are you listening careful? They need you and I to get out there and tell them the rest of the story so they might know the Saviour, not just about him. John Mackay, before we take some calls, and let me just say 1-800-316-316. We'll take some calls in just a few moments. At Jurassic Ark, while COVID was happening... Things went into a little bit of a doldrums for you. Things had to they sort of did, stop. There is one advantage, and no customers, no schools. We sure got a lot of work done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no interruptions. You no know, interruptions. Those pesky so customers. Experiments. No, don't be saying that. And so if folks want to see the latest sets of experiments, we're going to stream them as of uh, thir- Wednesday or Thursday. So look, Thursday should be there dealing with the layers that are there. So that's creationresearch.net, and it should be posted up on Thursday. And by the way, um, we, after such a, a, a big promo you gave me, you can get some of our books, particularly the more popular ones from Vision Bookstore, correct? Yes, uh, your book's available in Vision Store for mm-hmm. sure. Yes, mm-hmm. so for listeners, I know that listeners will be interested in what you just said too, actual experiments that you're doing mm-hmm. this week and uh, people will be able to see those online. So uh, you're live streaming some experiments. Well, what sort of experiments are they going to be? we were asked to prepare some material for a conference in America which is occurring this week and I said I wouldn't post up the results until you guys had a chance to actually do it at the conference in America. A little hard to get to America man, but I can send the, the streaming stuff over there. So we're going to be actually dealing with the fossil layers, the layers of material and fossil making and things like that because you and I are plagued with the doubt that says the bottom layer got there first and when I observe streams the bottom layer is not the first. The one on the upstream is first, the one on the downstream is last. And I keep telling people I still remember Professor Alan Wilson coming into Queensland University in our class saying, I'm sorry chaps, but the rocks in the Grand Canyon get old sideways. Now I took that thought and I've worked on it for years and years and finally we've set up experiments to show he's absolutely right on any scale. So have a look at these experiments and uh, see how you can work out whether the fossils really get old from the bottom to the top or whether they actually don't represent age at all. Wow. Okay, we'll talk some more about that shortly. Let's take some calls and we'll see if we can get through those as many calls as we can. Rachel is in Cairns in Queensland. Hi, Rachel. Welcome. Uh, Good morning, John. How are you? I'm not too bad for Fossil John. I've been labelled by one of my young students. <laughs> I I was just ringing. It's a it's a general question, not really a please explain question. Mm-hmm. But how do you do justice to um, deceased people when they've left their uh, collections behind? My my father was a collector, and it got to the stage where there was too many boxes under the bed, so he built his own museum, which was mm-hmm. a mix of gemstones and fossils and um, not that anyone's in a hurry to do anything but down the track a generation comes and goes mm-hmm. um, like what do people do when um, people aren't as interested in future generations okay. are there? The thing that we recommend is that you donate them to a museum or something like that or even creation research and we set it up as a, a bit of blogs display you know donated by mm-hmm. and give it a good example of his life we have a, a, an honorary tree, 
not that the tree is honorary, but all the people whose pictures are posted on there are big supporters of creation research. And we likewise love to tell people, okay, this display here was donated by Billy Smith, who loved Jesus and collected these all his life. So there's a thought for you. Whether you deal with a Cairns Museum or Christian Museum like Creation Research, that is a good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, Well, we're actually near... uh, um, you mean the fossils are near Toowoomba? Or? The, the fossils are between Toowoomba and Warwick. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, we, yeah. You can actually uh, send us an address and we can pop in and have a look sometimes. You're only three hours away sure. from where we are. That would be the way to do it. I've got to go up yeah. to the uh, Darling Downs to see what's left of some of the cotton crops and that and where my fossils got buried under the recent floods. So, yeah. so yeah, so that's what we have to do. So there's a thought for you. Just take our uh, phone number off the website, creationresearch.net, and uh, be mm-hmm. in touch, and uh, we'd love to hear from you and see what's there. Wonderful yeah. stuff. Rachel, thank you so much for your call. And, of course, when it comes to a fossil collection, some people collect all sorts of things like insects and mm-hmm. uh, all of those types of things, and I guess you've got to weigh up uh, where you might make a donation of those mm-hmm. rather than just sort of throw them out. Yes. As you're saying, you know, you've got a creation perspective if they were coming to mm-hmm. creation research. Uh, some fossils might be in a particular geographical setting yeah. and uh, and there might be local museums that might even do the same sort of thing. Is that, well, uh, is to that give possible? You, to give you an example, like we've got a creation museum in Tasmania. Now, one of the things we've been doing is going scouring Tasmania. We have a group of seven or eight young men, right, and a couple of ladies who will go out and collect fossils from a particular area. So we're building up a rock map of Tasmania to show you where these beautiful fossils are found, right, where you can see this absolutely perfect bed of ferns covering the whole of Tasmania, right? And you can only do that when people have maybe collected a a little fossil collection here, but they can't use it anymore. Uh, They can donate it to our museum in Tasmania. Likewise up here, right, our primary fossil bed is in Gympie, that we've collected from all over the planet. Like we have sheds at the moment that are being set up, sorted. Uh, you can pray for uh, uh, Karen who comes in every week and sorts fossils up to fossils so we know exactly where they're from, what they've done, how they can be displayed. And uh, if uh, Dad's collection is significant, then he goes up on our honour tree and uh, that's a good way of acknowledging the work that he's done. Wonderful way to honour your own parents or your great uncle who was a collector, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, yeah. uh, a little bit, what do you call it, uh, uh, crazy? Well, <laughs> maybe not. You've got to think of him like David who collected the material and Solomon built the temple. There you are. That's a better analogy. Okay. Let's take another call. Marty is in Tasmania. Hi, Marty. Welcome. Hey, good morning. How you doing, boys? Very good. Pretty good, Cobber. Good, good. Good, John. John, I've got a question for you that no one's been able to answer. Um, and the difference being uh, creation against evolution. And um, I, I've always asked the question, how, or what? Uh, I've never known one species that came into a completely other species. In other words, a dog to a cat or mm-hmm. a whale to a crab or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, no one's been able to answer me that question as to if we came from monkeys, well, how did we evolve into a completely different species? Okay, you'll find that there is no answer to that from an evolutionist perspective, but a caution about the words you're using. When Darwin yeah. wrote the book Origin of Species, he did it deliberately, right? Because right. in the classification system invented by Christians, by the way, the but classification system is based on Genesis chapter 1, where in the old Latin Bible you'll find, and God made them separate genus, 
right? That's in your mm-hmm. Bible, right? And that's the, mm-hmm. the yeah. Latin word transcribed into English. In Hebrew, yeah. it's min. The word species comes later on because the man who took that concept out of the Bible and said, well, when we have a look at the genus, uh, say the genus dogs, right, you'll find there's hundreds of species of dogs in this. Or you take ducks. I think there's 126 species of ducks. Now, they can all interbreed with each other, even though they prefer not to, right? <laughs> as funny as that sounds, a green duck looks at a brown duck and says, yuck, what a colour, and they don't, they don't mate with each other. And dogs are pretty much the same. So reserve the word species for those which are part of a bigger group called genus, Everyone can tell a dog and a coyote are the same thing, even though they sort of don't usually intermix or a wolf, right? Uh, So what you're talking about is can you take one kind or one genus and turn it into another? The answer is no, and the evolutionist knows absolutely no way. So you've got him flummoxed. Um, You know, it's your court ball and game. Right, so that's a, a good good objection. Uh, if you want to go to creationresearch.net, look up the word species, look up the word genus on our Q&A blocks or in our fact file, and you'll find a lot more helpful stuff uh, on that site. Oh, oh, well, wonderful. Thank you. Well, at least I'm, I'm uh, more in light with it now. Good. good. <laughs> wonderful stuff. Marty, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. You might have a question for John Mackay, the creation guy. Let's take another call. Ross is in Tasmania. Hi, Ross. Ah, oh, good. How are you going? Good. You might like to turn your radio down in the background there, Ross. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Six. Gotcha. Ah. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, um, I read an article about the speed of light was slowing down, mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't really understand it. I wonder if you could um, help me a little in simple terms. Okay, let's try for the simplest explanation. Um, the man who gave us the best theorem ever, and it hasn't had to be changed about what light is, uh, was James Clark Maxwell. He was a student of a Christian um, scientist, right? And his thought was, well, God says he's stamped his nature on creation. God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal yet separate, right? So when you are in sort of grade eight, and if you've ever done it, they usually bring it into grade eight, you put your thumb in one direction, your forefinger, uh, point it straight out, and your index finger at 90 degrees to that. So you've got three fingers each at 90 degrees to one another. And James Clark Maxwell figured out that if you then do electromagnetic waves, we don't need to worry about defining those or the maths of it, but if you have them travelling at three right angles to one another, you end up with what's called an electromagnetic spectrum of waves. The energy is transmitted. Okay, so what you find is James Clark Maxwell's theorem has never had to be altered. It works really well. And it works because he knew that light does several things. You can split it into rainbows. You can easily split it into three basic primary colours. When you pass it back through a prism, it joins up again to become a white colour. Right, So white light splits into three. The three will merge back into one. So the trinity, three, yet one. Uh, when you have a look at the way you deal with light, you can actually... Uh, figure out that if it's electric and magnetic, then if you interfere with the electricity and the magnetism, you can speed it up or slow it down. Now, speeding it up has proved much more difficult than slowing it down, but we do know one thing. Any kid in grade 9 or grade 10 learns that you pass light 
through a sheet of glass and it actually bends, right, and comes out in a slightly different space. And the teacher says that's just a property of light. What they didn't tell you is the reason it bends is it actually slows down. Right now, we've known light can slow down forever and a day. It's just beyond our ability to explain, so we ignore it. Right? <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but scientists are pretty good at that. And when you pass light back from a vacuum into glass, it changes speed. Then the mysterious thing is you put it back in a vacuum and it increases speed again. We have no idea how it does that, but what it's led to is a few experiments where you put it through such a high-powered electric and magnetic field and you can these days literally catch a bucket of light because you've stopped it, right? You can actually slow it down. You can actually expend a huge amount of energy trying to do so. So we know we can change the speed of light. It's just not economically viable to do so, but we can do it. Um, so that does that sort of help at a very simplistic level? Okay, thanks. Good. Ross, thank yeah. you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. You might have a question for John Mackay, the creation guy. Let's take another call. Mary is in Queensland near Dolby. Hello, Mary. Welcome. Oh, hello. Yes, hi. Good. Mary, What are your what's your question for John? I'm just looking at creation um, from what I'm looking at, and that is um, four days of creation. The first four days were actually for provisions. Before God actually made the animals, that he created the, the, the atmosphere and the food and the herbs and all that before he actually created the animals. So he provided the first four days for the food side of it before he created the living beings to eat it. And I just want to know um, his understanding on that because I looked at the moon, stars, moon, and sun, but they were only put on. I think it was the second or third day. Fourth, so fourth light day, came actually. The yeah. day before yeah. the sun, moon, and stars, and I'm just asking him, what does he think that light is that came on the first day? Okay, now when you go to the last book in the Bible, it says we'll not need the sun anymore because God Himself will be their light. So God does have other options when it comes to illuminating things than than we do. We need a flashlight to turn on. But one of the things we discover when we go outside at night and we turn on a light, uh, it's quite amazing really because we've just generated that light, albeit out of electrochemical stuff. But once we've generated it, it now has an amazing set of properties. You can actually turn your torch on, leave it on for one second, and a beam of light some 300,000 kilometers will come out of that torch. It's how fast it travels. Now switch it off, and what you'll find is you think the world goes dark. No, it's just moved so fast, so far away from you, out there in space is a beam of light 300,000 kilometers long, going somewhere, coming from nowhere. Now if you and I can do that, God doing it is no problem whatsoever. So on the first day he said, let there be light, and there was. And he called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, we have to use an electrochemical generator. He just has to use speech. That's how he does things. That's how he healed people when he was here on earth. That's how he made you know more bread and, and more fishes. He just made it on the spot. Neat trick if you can do it, but you and I can't. So he made the light, and he then defined the light as the day. Now, given that you are the creator of something, like if I find a new dinosaur, no one's ever found it before, I have the right to give it a name. Now, God invented the light and he gave it a name and then he did one other thing. He called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. 
Later on in scripture we read, This is the day the Lord has made. We'll be glad and rejoice in it because he ties it into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? God has opened the door for us and he did so on Resurrection Sunday, which matches day one of creation. So he created the light, but it's got more than just a physical purpose. It's got a spiritual message that one day, on the first day of the week, the light will shine in the darkness and we'll be able to rejoice. So imagine Resurrection Sunday, and it says the disciples were so overjoyed with, with, with the seeing Jesus, they couldn't think straight. Right? So that, that's how, how grateful they were. So that's what the, the, the light on day one is. And all of the other things, if you look at them, it's way more complicated than we ever go to think. So God didn't make the sun, moon and the stars until the fourth day, but he made the plants on day three. So they had just the right light without the sun. They had just the right intensity, just the right heat without any sun, moon or stars so they would function. But he didn't make the beetles on that till day five and six because many of the beetles actually depend on moonlight and they depend on sun travel. So he couldn't make them until he'd actually made something that needed a time sequence. Okay, so I hope that helps. But if you go to creationresearch.net, search the word light in our Q&A file. That's creationresearch.net. Click Q&A, search the word light, and you'll find that very helpful. Or better still, get from Vision the book Jesus, Walking with Jesus through Genesis, which deals with that specifically. Mary, is that helpful? Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, Time is running out. Uh, Thanks so much for that. Uh, We will probably put a line under any calls from this point. I want to ask you about some international operations. Sometimes we think uh, John Mackay, the creation guy, and we talk about this Jurassic Ark, and it's uh, near Gympie in Queensland, and you've got this operation that's happening in Tasmania, and you've got uh, all sorts of things that are developing here in Australia, but also around the world uh, in the UK. Give us an insight into some big developments that are going on in the UK, John. Okay, well, a few years ago, Dr. Glenn Wilson came to Australia for a university conference in Townsville, came and spent a few days with us, and he said, I want to set up a Jurassic Ark in the USA. This was before COVID, right? And man, have we struggled with that through COVID, etc. But it's now getting underway in the USA and Tennessee. And he sent me a, an email the other day saying, I've been going through your fossil collection. Yes, I do have these in America too. And he said, where did your mosasaur jaw come from? And I got to scratch my head and think, I've seen the three, thing for three or four years. Where did we find this one from? So we do have operations, again, restarting post-COVID in the USA. So pray for Dr. Glenn. He's a highly qualified man, now full-time for creation research. We had a board meeting this morning at four o'clock. The phone went from England and uh, the, you know, the Zoom stuff to decide on a new building for our museum over there. We've been storing stuff in a Sunday school building and taking a few people to see it. But we have thousand, ten thousand fossils at least, and we'd love to put them on display. So we've been meeting with us with a building owner, big parking space, etc. So it is big and it is uh, going, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Pray for our operation here in Australia. Pray for Joe Hubbard who's actually been asked to do a research project on dinosaur DNA in the UK. And we have a university that's willing to host this, and that is really, really wonderful indeed. So a new project, never been done in England before, 
but it will be done and he'll do it real good to the honour and glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, just quickly, before we have to end our conversation, uh, those like Joseph Hubbard, as you mentioned, he's going to be doing a PhD and mm-hmm. on dinosaur DNA in England. Uh, for people who might be thinking of doing some deeper, higher studies mm-hmm. in these areas, John, what's your encouragement? Because you know they're setting themselves up, aren't they, to be a target yeah. and uh, they'll be criticised and uh, they might even be howled down by their colleagues. But uh, what's the value in pursuing some higher studies here? Okay, they do need the wisdom of Daniel, right, who was prime minister in a pagan land. They need Abraham's faith, who was willing to sacrifice just about anything because of God's calling on his life. And they do need to actually want to finish it, right, to be witnesses for Christ, but with wisdom, right, because most of these guys who are above you Uh, they are anti-Christian, usually largely through ignorance, right? So when you first start off, you actually cross all the I's and dot the T's, or cross the T's rather, dot the I's, (laughs) uh, to suit them, to show them you know what they're talking about, and then you go beyond that. So technology or method-wise, be wise as Daniel, but you will find that this is really valuable for you and for them uh, with the wisdom that Christ will provide. And it's a needed witness on university campuses. And by the way, if you're a young man out there and you've got a science background and you feel a calling of God to minister in creation research, we are looking for a younger fossil John. Right? I'm becoming a decent fossil John, but we do need helpers. We've got five or six helpers here in Queensland working at Jurassic Ark, etc. So get in touch with us. We need someone who wants to go full-time for Jesus but wants to witness to people and win people for Christ rather than just win arguments. How do you recognize that you have this propensity to just retain facts and uh, you know you understand that you have a real uh, passion for uh, the the creation versus evolution debate and uh, when you're in that conversation on the street corner and you know that you've got wonderful things to contribute is that something of a, a you know a sign there that uh, that you might be ready to pursue something like this and even formalize some qualifications well, when I first became a Christian, uh, it wasn't through the church, right? It was through reading the Bible. And I came across a verse much later that said, the Spirit bears witness in our spirit that we are the children of God. And of course, the time I came across that was absolutely vital because someone had just torn me to shreds for reading the Bible. I was only reading it privately, right? And that it, the Spirit of God was so real in me that this Word of God was true and they needed it, Right. So number one, you'll need to know God's calling on your life and the presence of Jesus Christ. Number two, you'll want to be able to say, well, I've always loved this stuff. Always loved talking about finding out science, right? And I've got a real uh, gift in sharing, right? Now, if you don't have that gift yet, you can gain means and methods, right? There's no doubt about it. It's like I'm sure you learned some things about how to broadcast after the first 50 episodes. It got a whole lot better. It takes time, Uh, doesn't it? (laughs) It does take time. (laughs) Right, so you start out at kindergarten level, and like young Joseph Hubbard came with me around the world quite a few times before he got to the level he's at. So that's the sort of person, a humble person who wants to learn, wants to share Jesus above all. Well, in fact, it's an amazing invitation, and some listeners are going to be catching that, uh, that you're interested in talking to people who want to be your protégés mm. because uh, you recognize that there's a whole lot of need for not just mm-hmm. one voice speaking in the true. wilderness. Yep. Uh, there needs to be lots of voices raised up and uh, good things happening around the world in the UK and in the US. To connect with John Mackay, the creation guy, why don't you write this down? Creation Research dot net 
Now, creationresearchlive.net is uh, where you're going to be doing some streaming on these uh, these experiments this yeah. coming week. Now, that's happening when? That's That'll probably go up uh, Thursday. On Thursday. Okay, so uh, check in with creationresearchlive.net. Now, creationresearch.net, you can also visit askjohnmackay.com. Uh, you can find John Mackay on YouTube. You can follow him on Facebook. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, you can keep up with fossils on Instagram. There's lots of ways to connect with John. You can subscribe for a free email newsletter. And you can get a hold of articles that will help you to understand the issues around creation versus evolution. So do take advantage of some of those opportunities, creationresearch.net. And we mentioned some books. Uh, You'll be able to find those in the Vision Store. So vision.org.au and you'll find a link there for Vision Store. John Mackay, always so valuable talking. Thanks so much for joining us once again today on 2020. Good on you, mate. Great to see you again. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.